Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to the Ad Nauseam Podcast. This is episode 32. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here, as always, with my ruggedly handsome oh, well, thank you. co-host, uh, Dr. David Noe. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing pretty well. I shaved off the full beard. I got a little bit of the five o'clock shadow, trying to support the Eumaeus look. Oh, for today. Yeah, that, yeah. That's good, yeah. Do you have, do you have a beard philosophy? No, I don't. You don't just kind of as you're feeling in the as you feel it in the morning. Yeah, just... put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off. That yeah. kind of a thing. Uh, however, we are always looking for sponsors, so <laughs> we could get some of that big foam money, that shave foam. Oh man, those guys—they're loaded, right? They're they're huge. Yeah, yeah. Barbasol. Yeah, yeah. So the vomitorium. What's the weather like? I know everyone is keenly listening to find out oh, what man. the weather's like oh, around man. It, the vomitorium. It's, it's bright and sunny. I wouldn't say spring is in full bloom, but you can feel it coming. It's coming. It's coming. Yep. We had a low of 19 degrees Fahrenheit this morning. This was this was crisp. Was it that cold this morning? It was cold. Man. By the time you rolled out of bed about 11 a.m., <laughs> things had come to around 22, probably, but yeah. still pretty cold. Still very cold, yeah. But it, it's looking good from where, where I'm sitting over the lake here. Um, I can see a few buds and, and shoots coming up. It's gorgeous. It, yeah, it's full of promise. On its way. Yep. So, uh, Dave, you got our shout-out today. I do, and I'm really happy to be sending this one to a young woman who uh, was a student of both you and me. Her name is Hannah, and the last name, she gave us very specific instructions as to how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's got an interesting spelling, but we are supposed to pronounce the last name as Griffune. Griffune. With an accent on the yoon, because, quote, Dutch is a strange vowel-y language. It, that it is, yeah. So Hannah is a high school Latin teacher here in the state of Michigan. She studied Latin and Greek with you and me at Calvin back in the day. She got a, uh, a degree, a master's from uh, some institute over in Massachusetts. Wonderful young woman, excellent student of Latin. I remember uh, Hannah as a student very fondly, yep. really bright, inquisitive. I remember she, um, which, did she come on the Greece trip? Uh, not not with us. I think she went just with you. With, with me, yeah. It's a wise move. I just remember her just being, just kind of just devouring everything. Right. Just, just, just soaking it up. Soaking it up, yeah. yeah. And now she's uh, keeping the flame lit by teaching Latin out there. And we're so grateful for that. Yes. So thank you, Hannah, for doing that and for listening too. Yes. And uh, Jeff, I think you have our opening quote this week. I do. And I, I have to admit, I chose this quote uh, really because of the title of the article okay. as I stumbled across. And this is from Which an is? Is Eumaeus Russell's Up Dinner. Oh, it's wonderful. It's perfect for this podcast right? And this is, uh, was written by Rick Newton uh, from a Classical Journal article from uh, about five, six years ago. He writes, although Eumaeus in his hut clearly contrasts with the suitors in the hall, his protracted hospitality beginning with lunch and ending with dinner exhibits features suggesting that he is more than a pious observer of Zinnia. Reese, who identifies 38 distinct components in the Homeric hosp hospitality sequence, 38? Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. who is this Reese? <laughs> how did he find 38? I mean, does he count each element of the service, uh, a hospitality component, like the salad fork is a component, the pickle fork, right. the dessert fork, each one? Where you put the napkin. Exactly. Is it's a strange. It's very strange. Plausibility I, a little bit. I read that sentence. I think that for Mr. or Ms. Reese, there's got to be better uses of your time. I would think so. I tried to count the <laughs> hospitality components in the Homeric sequence once. I got to about 21. Yeah. I just got exhausted. You got exhausted. We continued to lay down. That, that's enough. <laughs> All right. So Reese, apparently, apparently there are 38 distinct components. 
<laughs> in the sequence. Um, but Reese has found that the swineherd's reception includes almost all the formal elements of the conventional hospitality type scene. The traveler is directed to the house by a youth, Athena in disguise. He arrives at the property. So the sequence even be- begins, apparently, before you even get to the house. Yeah, I suppose uh, so. All right. Um, which Seems is just, arbitrary. It but. does. He arrives at the property, which is described in detail, and encounters dogs at the doorway. Dogs? All right. Uh, he sits on the ground and waits until the host escorts him indoors, seats him, and serves a meal. So we're up to about seven now, right? So you're keeping count? Yes. Yeah, okay. 31 more. Right. After lunch, the host toasts him with wine and inquires after his identity. So mm. Two or three more there, I guess? Yeah. Well, it's it's still interesting that someone made the effort. Yeah. At least that person, Reese, uh, is taking Homer seriously. Yeah. Trying to track down, here are the elements. I have often told students, this is something I learned, that there are four requirements of Zania. So we can take that 38 and divide it unequally by four, right? Okay, okay yeah. And here are the elements. You have to offer them um, a place to sleep, right? You have to ha- offer them something to eat. You have to offer them something to drink. And you have to offer them conversation. Conversation. There's just four elements. Right, right. Yeah, and I would add to that, that's all before you inquire after identity. Right? Yes, you're not supposed, it's not polite to ask, so who are you and what are you doing here? Right. Until you have fed them, uh, beveraged them, given them a place to rest. Right. So I, was, I think I said in class too, is like for a, someone to come to your door and as a host to say, who are you, would be like somebody coming to your door to say and saying, how much do you weigh and, and how, how much do you make per year? Yes. Right? That, well, I mean, that's the way the Girl Scouts typically treat me. <laughs> That's what you get a lot? Oh, yeah. Do you buy the cookies anyway? Of course. Of course. <laughs> All right. Well, we're talking a lot about Zania today, we right? We are. Back to Zania, the theme. So for those of you who like to spell, this is typically transliterated from Greek into English, X-E-N-I-A. Yeah. You know it from such words as uh, xenophobia, right? The fear of or hatred of strangers. But Zania is this hospitality component. Where else have we seen it in the Odyssey uh, hitherto? Right, we've seen it um, kind of in its positive and in its negative form, right? Um, I've read the argument that if you're looking for kind of a moral center of the Odyssey, you could do a lot worse than Xenia. And that one of the ways we see the suitors as villains is that they are uh, abusing the hospitality of Odysseus's household. Um, and that's one of the main reasons they get what's coming to them. Right, later yeah. on. Later on. And of course, there is Book Nine, the big one. Yeah. Uh, which, which episode, I don't know if you've noticed, you look at our numbers at all. That episode on um, It's All Fun and Games Till Someone Gets an Eye Poked Out, Yeah, that one's doing really well. In fact, some of you listeners out there, I'm have a little bit of a bone to pick with you. Pick it. What's going on? <laughs> You're skipping some of the earlier ones. They, wouldn't, you, they wouldn't do this, would yeah, they? Yeah, they're going right to the Cyclops. Oh, man. It's like going, let's say, getting past the verse and going right to the, the singable chorus. They're just really sticking their finger in our eye there. <laughs> right. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Now, I, now I'm a little upset. <laughs> Right. So listen to the lead up before you get to the monster scene, which, of course, is uh, an instance of Zania gone awry. No, yes. no Zania. No. Trapped in the monster's cave. But now we get the individual, Eumaeus, who is uh, without a doubt my favorite character in the entire Odyssey. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about about why that or do you want to save that? Uh, I think we can get to it a little bit later. Okay. But I will say this. 
Our youngest child uh, wasn't sure if that child was going to be a girl or a boy. I was really pulling if if the child were a boy that we named that child Eumaeus. Really? Yeah, I just loved the name. And what did your lovely wife Tara think about that? Well, we had a girl, oh. so Is it, it became, the point became moot. <laughs> it yeah. became moot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she would have gone for it, but Eumaeus is just such a sympathetic character. He is. Well, that would be, I think, a, a tough cross to bear for a young kid to, to call go, him Eumaeus. Well, I mean, what, nicknames Yumi, Yumi, Yumi. That's worse. There's there are worse things than Yumi. Come on. <laughs> You could call him Mayus, I suppose. Yeah. May May. May May. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I guess opportunity lost. Mm. But uh, I, I mean, I agree with you. I love Eumaeus. He's a great character, very sympathetic. Um, and, and like Demodocus, right? Like Demodocus, I forget the book number, but the Phaeacians, it has long been thought that perhaps Eumaeus is Homer. Yeah. Right. It, there's a clear. There's a clear kind of devotion and care and love he has for the character, mm-hmm. right? He's uh, we can we, much more attached to Eumaeus yes. than some of the other persons, right? So he's one of the the handful of characters that gets that personal second person singular, the the you and you Eumaeus, the apostrophe, yeah, the apostrophe, exactly. Um, the only one in the Odyssey that gets it, right? I think it's it's Patroclus and Menelaus who get it in in the in the Iliad. So only those characters are addressed in the second person singular yeah. in these respective epics. Which suggests Homer has a special affinity for mm-hmm. them. Yep. Or is at least drawing our attention to them in a different way. Yes. Yep. So what would, what would you say then is the role of Xenia here? How would you describe that in the Odyssey? I would say that we, we might call it the, the moral fulcrum uh-huh. of, of the epic. I mean, it's something that Homer keeps coming back to. Like a, like a teeter-totter. Yeah, right? yeah. Showing how it's, how it's done, how it's not done. Um, of course, the Phaeacians are, you know, they also display hyper-Xenia. Uh, Circe to some degree, uh, despite the men changing into pigs part. Yes, and and Calypso, mm-hmm. not not really. It's a safe place to stay, but she abuses the friendship. Yes, and holds him prisoner. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point as well. So it's it's a thread that mm-hmm. connects a lot of the pieces of the of the of the Odyssey. And today we're gonna go back to Circe and then wind up in the hut of Eumaeus, covering three books. Yep, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. Not gonna give each of them equal coverage. No, but we're gonna look at some of the highlights and the uh, the really interesting portions. Yeah, let's do it. So I'd like to start out with a little bit of a an excerpt here from Lombardo, beginning of book twelve. Uh, Our ship left the river ocean and came to the swell of the open sea in the island of Ayaya, where dawn has her dancing grounds and the sun his risings. We beached our ship on the sand, disembarked, and fell asleep on the shore waiting for daybreak. So they've come back to Circe's island. That's Ayaya, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to keep the promise that Odysseus made to Elpinor. Um, in, in the underworld. In right? the underworld, right. I think we talked about it in our first underworld mm-hmm. uh, episode. Elpinor's body is unburied. On the island, he died. He he fell asleep, fell off the roof. I think you said he was eating some nachos on the veranda. Yeah, exactly right. The next thing you know, Odysseus <laughs> bumps into him in the underworld. Yeah, and he's, "What are you doing here?" Mm-hmm. And he learns this this tragic, maybe darkly comic uh, tale. Uh, but Elpinor's stuck. He can't cross over. He can't uh, be where he's supposed to be unless he gets the uh, the proper rights. And so Odysseus keeps his promise, goes back to the island to take care of this um, this last uh, piece of business for Elpinor. So do you think, Jeff, that this means Odysseus has changed, he's been transformed or altered a little bit in his character since his time in the underworld? You know, I've changed my mind about this. Okay. Um, and it really came from rereading these books in preparation for this episode. Uh, I think, uh, I'm getting ahead of the story, I think in some ways Odysseus throws away what he's a lot of what he's learned at the end of the epic. But I think there's a lot of evidence in these three books that Odysseus 
has been changed by this catapesis. He's been changed by his encounters with his his dead comrades. Mm. And we start to see him act a little bit more selflessly, act a little bit more like maybe what we would expect or hope a captain would act like. Right. So to carry along the theme a little bit, we have been comparing the underworld to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yes. In some states, I, I guess it's called the Secretary of State's Office. Yes. But I trust everyone will know what it is when we describe it. The DMV. Yeah. Yes. When you leave that place, you're not really changed. <laughs> well, not for the better. No. <laughs> Drained. Yes. Right? Fatigued. This is not how Odysseus is, though, because here in the instance of Elpinor, he seems to be expressing genuine compassion. Yes. Yeah, and I think later on, too, when we see he decides to share some information with his few remaining men, where before you might be the argument that uh, kind of a pre-underworld Odysseus wouldn't have had the wherewithal to do that. Correct. Yeah, but we'll see how this goes. So what happens when he gets back to Aiaia and re-encounters Circe? Well, they um, Homer gently suggests that they briefly uh, start their affair once again. Uh, Circe is fascinated, clearly, by Odysseus, and she loves to hear him tell his stories, and she wants to hear all about his trip to the underworld. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear about that? That's right? pretty impressive. It is impressive. And... Um, and so I think that, you know, we've also talked along the way about certain characters maybe being doublets or kind of mirror images of other characters. And it struck me as I reread this that Circe is, she's kind of a, she's a kind of Penelope. Yeah. She, she's, she's crafty. She's curious. Uh, she's, um, they're a good match for each other. They're kind of, they're lovers, but they're also rivals mm-hmm. in a kind of way. In terms of versatility and ability. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I find I th- that plausible. Yeah, so I think she, and she's, of course, she's a goddess on this on this island, and and so therefore kind of cut off from that that world. Um, but I think she does. She foreshadows Penelope in many uh, distinct ways. The reason I find that plausible is that the more near Penelope's Odysseus encounters, the more persons who have some of Penelope's charm and beauty and so forth the more meaningful it is when he says goodbye to all of them ah. and embraces the real thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Th- that has always struck me as the, the remarkable aspect of this book. He has all of these adventures of various kinds, but he still just wants to be home with his wife. Exactly right, yeah. So it's, it's not uh, clumsy. It would be easy for him to reject persons that are not at all near Penelope mm-hmm. in beauty, charm, character, you know, moral quality. That, that's not a story. But for him to say no to persons that are like her, but not her, that's meaningful. Yes. No, that's a really good point. I had not thought of it in that way. Um, I mean, I also noticed in this too, Homer kind of underlining the tragedy of, of being immortal, right? There, it's, it's like that. It's for that, Circe, you're saying. For Circe or for Calypso or, or maybe even the gods writ large. That, sure. You know, that the gods have to find meaning by investing themselves in, in mortals, right? Yes. That the fact that they don't, they don't live with that threat of death hanging over them makes their existence kind of ridiculous. Well, this is the second DC comic reference in a few weeks, but it's the Superman problem. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, who, who can relate to him, right? Right, right. And so it's, and it, and it kind of ups the tragedy for Cersei and Calypso because they get a little bit of taste of that, right? They, they fall for, they fall for Odysseus. Calypso, we remember, is very upset when Odysseus has to leave. Um, Cersei seems to be more accepting and resigned to it, but she too clearly loves him. Mm-hmm. Circe also furthers the plot. In the same way that she sent Odysseus to the underworld to get information, now she warns him about the sirens that are coming up. How how does she know this stuff? Not relevant to the story. (laughs) One of those questions you don't ask? You don't ask. You don't ask biological questions. Yeah. And you don't ask where the characters get information. Really? 
Okay. I don't. I don't uh, think you should. All right. where, where do you think she found out? Well, I don't know. I mean, is, is it just kind of a function of her being, you know, a sorceress? Yes. That she just, that's where she gets it. Yes. Okay. She mixed up some some fancy herbs and it told her where Sylvan Charybdis are. Yes. Okay. Fine. Yeah, she t- I, I accept it. She takes out some chamomile, <laughs> drops it in the mug, and as the leaves swirl around in the mug or the teacup, she can see. She can read that in the bottom of the cup. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Fine. Good. We're we're agreed on that then? Yes, we are. All right. There are two ways home, she says. Yes. The wandering rocks. Yes. Right? The clashing rocks. The simplegades. Yes. They clash together. And uh, is that a kind of a nod? What would you say? Yes. They show up famously in the Jason legend. Okay, the Argonauts. He has to sail the Argo through those. Mm -hmm. The other way home is through Scylla and Charybdis. Right. So between Scylla, the six-headed monster who kind of pops out of the cliffside, and then Charybdis is kind of the swirling maelstrom vortex that sucks down the ships good words yes. maelstrom and vortex always, maelstrom isn't that, i love that that's word. a great word the latin word is virago 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 which is the the vortex the, the vor- maelstrom yeah. i like that word i can hardly get these words <laughs> i'm not sure what's wrong but the scylla well you haven't said enough about scylla well, tell us more about scylla you well, got more to say about i it, do so? okay. scylla is a woman from the waist up She's anthropomorphic, but she is a pack of dogs from the waist down. That's creepy. Think about that for a minute, listener. That's horrifying. Yeah, to be a dog from the waist down, bad enough. But to be a pack of dogs, <laughs> inevitably students ask me, how does that work? How can someone be a pack of dogs from the waist down? <laughs> you know what my reply is? What? It's, that's a biology question. <laughs> so don't ask it. You can't ask me that. Right. Yeah, especially for these these kind of composite monsters, the right? chimeras. The, right, right. They fit together somehow. Right. That's all you need to know. And it, in in terms of like horror, that's best left to your imagination. Exactly. Yeah. So so the thing that really bothers you about Scylla is how the dogs fit together. No, that's that's not the. I'm more concerned part. about who let the dogs out. <laughs> No good? <laughs> uh, we got to go to break already. So in this scene, this might be one of these questions you don't ask. Odysseus immediately chooses choice two. Uh, Scylla and Charybdis ahead of the clashing rocks or the wandering rocks. And um, I don't know why exactly he chooses that one. Maybe he just knows that this one last ship wouldn't be fast enough. Could be. Right? I mean, we know from the Jason story that the Argo barely makes it through. Well, you send a bird through. Yeah. Right. And the bird triggers the, the eye that this puts your garage door down automatically. Right. Right. And the rocks smash together and crush that poor little bird. And then as soon as they open up. Zip. Yeah. You skip right through there. Right. And Cersei doesn't give him the bird idea. No. Right. So maybe Odysseus just kind of, he knows what his ship is capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the face of it, it just seems like the Silicryptus are the more horrifying option. Definitely. But, Pack of dogs down below. Right. Um, but then very importantly... Uh, she warns him about the island of Helios and the, the cattle of the sun. So Helios is the sun god. Yes. Now, the sun in Greek myth has many different names, right? There's yep. a, Apollo. He's the god of the sun. Mm-hmm. There's Phoebus Apollo. There's uh, Helios. And then there's Hyperion also, mm-hmm. which I believe is uh, Helios's son, also a titan. So it's kind of a family business. And uh, students often ask, once again, why do these different gods all have the same responsibility. <laughs> Why can't there just be one sun god? Right. If one name is good, five names is better. I think that's right. really the explanation. 
it's an, it's an accretion of persons identified with the same task and it didn't seem to bother them. The kind of consistency that uh, most folks who are theists expect from their religion yeah. wasn't an aspect of Greek thought prior to Plato, it seems. No, the whole idea of a kind of having a source text or a, Correct. a, a canonical version, just it's and not there. there. And there had to be consistency between different doctrines and mm-hmm. beliefs prior to Plato. I don't see it. No. So uh, can I read a little from the Lombardo yes, translation? Let's so, hear it. So this is, um, this is Circe speaking to uh, Odysseus, warning him about his next steps. Which, which is, don't eat the cattle of the sun, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. So she says, then you will come to three, uh, Thrinakia, an island that pastures the cattle of the sun, seven herds of cattle and seven flocks of sheep, 50 in each. They are immortal. They bear no young and they never die off. And their shepherds are goddesses. You know, how, how do they taste? How do they? Oh, oh delicioso. The cattle of the sun. <laughs> yes. Seven herds of cattle yeah. and seven flocks of sheep. 15 each, that's 700, isn't it? I, I don't do math. Well, I think I'm, so. I'm going to trust you there. They're immortal. They're immortal. Yep. So this this is Kobe this is Kobe beef. Okay. Right. Um, I mean they have goddesses as shepherds, nymphs with gorgeous hair, uh, Fethusa and Lampetier, whom gleaming Naira bore to Helios, Hyperion the sun. When she had borne them and reared them, she sent them to Thrinakia to live far away and keep their father's spiral horned cattle. If you leave these unharmed and keep your mind on your journey, you might yet struggle home to Ithaca. But if you harm them, I foretell disaster for your ship. And crew, and even if you escape yourself, you shall come home late and badly, having lost all your companions. Oh, uh, okay. And those last, those last words. Um, I mean, I would need to check the Greek, but I think that's exactly the last part of the Cyclops curse. Okay. So remember, Polyphemus says, "Dad, Poseidon, I want you to blast them all." Correct. He says, "But if you can't do that, then may make it, just, it hard. Make it hard. Yeah, to and, get back. And uh, um, and may he lose everything." Well, yeah. this this puts Odysseus in a better light than I was previously inclined to hold him. I've compared the story of the Odyssey to the Aeneid, uh, on which we haven't done an episode yet, but they're coming, so beware. Whereas Aeneas has to get everyone home, Odysseus is more the singular hero, and everyone else is funneled out until he's the last, last one left. Yeah. And that's true, but here we see it's not his fault. Right. Here he's showing some concern post-catabasis for his men, and here's the, the book where they really mess up badly. Yes, exactly right. So, I mean, we could I mean, trace this back to, of course, to Odysseus' uh, braggadocio mm-hmm. in front of Polyphemus and giving him the tools to curse him. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's foreordained. Odysseus is going to lose all his men and come home alone to Ithaca. Okay. So then they pull out in front of the sirens. Yes. On their way, they say goodbye to Circe, heading back, and they start then to approach the sirens. And this is still in book 12. Yes. And do you have a little bit of that as well from the Lombardo? Yeah, I just thought this was this was really interesting. So um, Odysseus turns to his men and says, Friends, it is not right that one or two alone should know what goddess Circe foretold. Better we should all know, live or die. We may still beat death and get out of this alive. This is not, the, I mean, to me, this is not the Odysseus before the underworld. Um, if we compare this to like the the uh, the Aeolus episode with mm-hmm. the bag of winds, I mean, he he went on board. He conceals information from yeah, his crew. Took a nap. So suddenly he's a team player. Suddenly he's the guide on the side. He's the guide on the side, but too little, too late. Yeah. I mean, how many men does he have left? He's got one scrag- scraggly, barnacled ship left. Mm-hmm. But, a dozen men, maybe 25, 30 men. Yeah. Now he decides to be. Uh, more conciliatory and bring everyone in on the decision making. Maybe better late than never, I suppose. Mm. But of course, it's we know from the Cyclops curse. We know from Circe's Circe's words. It's not going to end well for his men. Mm. 
So as we get close up to the Siren episode, mm -hmm. like the story of the Cyclops, this has got to be the most familiar, one of the most familiar from the entire epic. It, I agreed. If you don't know who the characters are, you can't tell your Penelope from your Nausicaa. You know the story of the Sirens. Yeah. I think what's so striking about that is while the Cyclops gets his a whole book of his own, the Sirens episode is in uh, a standard translation, barely a page. Mm -hmm. It's so short, but it's one of these stories that has such a, uh, a, a strong afterlife, you know, even the, even the phrase. You want to throw in a, a little bit of German there? Uh, yes, the, the Nachleben. The Nachleben. Yes. Uh, oh, I like the way you said it, like Arnold. Nachleben. <laughs> I'm not doing any more voices. A couple of weeks ago was, uh, remember Russell Crowe and the Gladiator? Are you still, so, you still hurting from I'm that? I'm still hurting from all that. Right, all right. So the Nachleben, yeah. the afterlife of the sirens, people love this story. They do. Odysseus strapped to the mast. Yep. Uh, he extracts an oath, right, from his crew first. Mm -hmm. And the oath is, no matter what I say, don't release me. Right. He wants to be the first guy to sail past the sirens and hear the song without paying for it with his life. And so he famously puts wax in his, his men's ears so they can't hear anything. And they, they lash him to the mast so he can't kind of struggle free and dive over the edge. But he can hear them. He can hear them. And then what is the, um, what is the locale like where the sirens are situated? Oh, it's rocky. Okay. It's rocky. Yeah, and and uh, aren't there heaps of men's bones piled up? Oh, are they, I, I'm forgetting that part. Yeah. Right. It's, so it's, it's not welcoming. It's not welcoming. And we never, in Homer's version, we never see the sirens. No. We, we only hear them. And I also find that really interesting, too, because if you look at even later depictions of the sirens, even in the Roman era on um, the idea that the sirens lure them with their, with their feminine wiles. Right. right? They, um, with their, their, that they're combing their hair or they have yes. lovely faces, things like that. Not part of the original story. At all. And so they have to lure Odysseus with, uh, with something else. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to get to that after the break. Yeah, after the break, I think you're going to read some Greek for us. You, am I actually going to get yeah? to read some oh, Greek? Oh, come on. I've never stopped you. You haven't stopped you. I'm excited about it. I, I'm excited to hear it. And so, dear listener, that's coming up after the break. Today's episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you in part by the good people at Hackett Publishing. We are so grateful to have this excellent and generous sponsor. Hackett was founded in 1972, and they bring the best of classics and humanities to a wide audience with their affordable, attractive offerings. Yes, Hackett's growing list includes hundreds of titles covering ancient history, political science, classical language study, you name it. Their editions are ideal for both classroom use and general readership offering affordable modern translations and editions of classical works with helpful scholarly notes, annotations, and introductions. What do you like about Hackett, Dave? Well, what's not to like, frankly, I have used their texts in my classes before. I uh, have taught a little bit of early modern philosophy, their version of Descartes and his meditations. That's just spot on kind of stuff. They also have good stuff in Greek philosophy. They have the CDC Reeve translation, the new Hackett Aristotle, uh, with new editions coming out all the time. Yes, and ad nauseum listeners can take advantage of a special offer, right? That's right, they can. If they want to check out, for example, one of my favorites, Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, they can go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, hackettpublishing.com, find the texts they want, drop them into the shopping cart. When they get to checkout, they enter the code AN2021, AN2021, and they will get 20% off plus free shipping, exclusive for AN listeners. Great deal. Check it out. Ad nauseum, your attention, please. Mark Helwig and the Portland-based crew at Ratio Coffee have done it. 
Don't throw your francs, liras, drachmas, and euros down the drain at some overpriced suburban drive through brew baby beanery. Try one of Ratio's twin powerhouses, the Ratio 6 or the Big Brother the 8. You can have better than cafe quality beverages right off your countertop. That's right, Jeff. I love my Ratio 8 in oyster color with walnut accents. It's a part of my daily ritual. I wake, I grind, I bloom and effervesce, then I brew and boom, ready. That bloom stage is where the magic happens, banishing all the CO2 to the farthest corners of Tartarus and then sending a cascade of 200-degree water down through the Tenebris beans and into the durable stainless steel carafe. Look, even if you failed high school chemistry, you can't go wrong with this automatic pour-over. Perfectly timed, aesthetically excellent, consistent coffee. Jeff, how can our listeners add some ratio magic to their day? Listeners, right now you can go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com, and get an exclusive 15% discount on the Ratio 6. Enter special code A-N-C-O for 15% off the Ratio 6. A-N-C-O ratiocoffee.com. Who knew? So true. Bring the bloom, zoom, and brew home to you. Jeff, if you were going to name a coffee company, bring some onomastic magic to bear, what would you call it? Well, I would call it Ad Astra, of course. How do you think NASA got to the moon? It wasn't with green tea, let me tell you. It was with coffee beans. Ad Astra. Now, Dave, you like coffee, right? Oh, I love coffee. You better believe it. I even wrote a little poem you, about my favorite hobby. You didn't. Yes, I did. Let's hear it. Okay. There once was a guy who drank coffee. He served it with foam. Not too frothy. Now, hold on a second. Is that in their poetry series? Not yet, but I'm auditioning, Jeff. I'm... Patrick and I are in conversation. We're in negotiations. We're going to see if we can get that on a bag. Now, why don't you tell the listeners about the poetry series from Ad Astra? Well, featuring Stevens, Rilke, Wordsworth, this is great stuff. And let's not forget Las Lajas, Microlad, and Tenebris. That's your favorite, right? Oh, you bet. I had several delicious cups of Tenebris this morning. Several? Yes, I did. That's where you're shaking over there? <laughs> Listener, you should look at their beautiful website with their giant repurposed coffee roaster. I think it used to be a steam shovel, maybe Mike Mulligan's, or an arc welder. But now it roasts coffee beans that only score 84 or higher on the 100-point scale. Jeff, how can our listeners get their palates on some of this delicious brew? AN friends, go to oddastraroasters.com, oddastra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com, and check out some of their delicious offerings. You get a special 10% off by entering code ANAA, and you can also sign up for their monthly subscription. Check it out. So, Jeff, you're going to read some Greek now for our listeners from Book 12, right? Indeed. Deo agi on polo aino du seo megacudo sakayon, nea katas de son ina no iterreno pucuses, ugar potis te de pare la sane imalaine, pringi me on melegeuruna posto maton hopacusae, ola ge terps aminos ne tai kai play on a edo. Oh, that's beautiful. Nicely done. I struggled a little bit with that fourth line, but uh, uh, it's tough. It's tough stuff, man. <laughs> you got that, that rough breathing there with the Ada, pring, and so forth. That's right. tough. Yeah. And you were supposed to be plucking a lyre behind Was that, I? So you let me down. I'm sorry. Yeah, next time. Next time. <laughs> that's beautiful poetry. Beautiful, beautiful language. Nicely done. It is. Shall I read a little bit of the Lombardo translation of that portion? Please do. Okay. Come hither, Odysseus, glory of the Achaeans. Stop your ship so you can hear our voices. No one has ever sailed his black ship past here without listening to the honeyed sound from our lips. He journeys on delighted and knows more than before, for we know everything that the Greeks and Trojans suffered in wide Troy by the will of the gods. We know all that happens on the teeming earth. I like how Lombardo translates those first few words as, come hither. Yeah. Because I think he's giving a little bit of a nod to what we were just talking about. The knock, Laban, that this is really about 
romance. Yes. It's, it's erotic. Right, right. So um, I thought that, that nice little touch. It is a good touch. Yeah. Well done, Stan. So the, the sirens here, I like that the appeal to Odysseus on this two levels. It's, um, they say, you know, come here. We know everything that happened in Troy. Uh, so he, they're kind of saying, we can tell you about yourself. Fill in all the details that you may not have gotten already. Right. Or just, I think, maybe appealing to his vanity, too. Yes, let's for say, sure. Here, let us tell you your own story. Hmm. Right. So it kind of reminds me of Demodocus amongst the, the Phaeacians, that first song that he sings. Right. And then two, uh, it appeals to his curiosity. They claim to know everything that happens on the teeming earth, right? So it's um, like we saw Odysseus in the underworld. The thing that he wanted to do was question everybody, right? right? There's so many people that he wanted to talk to, but before he had to leave. And so that taps into that voracious thirst for knowing. The danger of knowledge, though, because this is not something granted to mortals. He ought to resist. Yeah. If, if the fulcrum of the epic is Xenia, and what should we call this? Kind of the, the flip side of that? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, what's, the, what's the opposite of a fulcrum? I don't know. I know. What, did, what did Archimedes say? Give me a place to stand and I can't come up with a metaphor. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. But uh, say a bit more about that because I think that's interesting, kind of the, the problem of knowledge. And what, do, what, do you mean? what do you mean by that, the, the danger of knowledge? Odysseus's weakness, as we've seen in so many of these episodes, is that he wants to know more than he should. Yeah. Okay. Okay. R- yeah. Really. He's after knowledge he shouldn't have. In the cave of the Cyclops, he just wants to explore. He wants to mm-hmm. learn. Mm-hmm. When he's down in the underworld, he, he wants to know more. And it's it's only the gods' intervention which push him in the right direction mm. to get him back to Penelope. Because he could have been sidetracked at any number of these places. Right. How much shorter could his uh, his wanderings have been? If he weren't beset with this insatiable <laughs> curiosity. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. So I don't know what we would call it. If, if Xenia is the fulcrum... This is the uh, the ever present temptation, the danger, the yeah. you know the trap that's always set for him. Yes, clever Palutrapon, versatile Odysseus, be satisfied with what you got. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. That's it's the trap. Okay. Yep. So from there, um, they sail past Scylla and Charybdis, mm-hmm. and um, Scylla pops out with her packs of dogs, um, six six heads, uh, each grab a man. Do you know how right? she got that way? No, I don't, I'm forgetting that the story. The story of how she ended up that way is quite interesting. She was um, a love interest of Poseidon, but Poseidon's wife Amphitryon, Poseidon's, you know, a pledged lover, Amphitryon, was spying on Scylla when uh, Scylla and Poseidon were to have their tryst. And I think that Scylla was sitting in some kind of a bathtub or a um, some kind of a sauna, a pool of some sort. Hmm. Uh, a sauna is not a pool, but you get the sense of it anyway. And at the last moment, Amphitryon inserted some poison herbs, some magic potion, into the place where she was bathing as she was waiting for Poseidon and their tryst. And that turned her from beautiful woman to beautiful woman from the waist up, pack of dogs from the, the waist, waist down. down. Poseidon has a, a long history of he leaving these kinds of oh, horrors yes. in his wake. Medusa is another yeah, one. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking of. Sure. Right? Yeah. So you don't like any of the more like any of the immortals, but specifically the three big ones. Yeah, you don't want to be the object of their interest. Yes, it's going to turn out terribly for you. Right. So Odysseus is down uh, another half dozen men, and they slip through. They slip past uh, Charybdis, and then it's uh, they see the island of the of the sun in the distance, and Odysseus, knowing what he knows and and what his men now know too. He's told them what, what Circe has said. He says, let's skip this island. Let's keep going. But uh, the men, in particular Eurylochus, uh, one of the few of uh, named men of, of Odysseus' crew, says, no, 
we got to stop. Is this the same guy again causing trouble? Who is on on Cersei's Island? Yes, Eurylochus was on Cersei's Island. He has he had the sense not to get pigified, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, I think yeah, I think it's exactly the same guy. Hmm. You're going to read a little bit of what Lombardo says there from uh, Eurylochus' lips. Yeah, sure. So he 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 wants to stop, and and he uh, takes it upon himself to turn to the rest of the crew and, and convince them. He says, "Listen to me, shipmates. Despite your distress, all forms of death are hateful, but to die of hunger." is the most wretched way to go. What are we waiting for? Let's drive off the prime beef in that herd and offer sacrifice to the gods of broad heaven. If we ever return to Ithaca, we will build a rich temple to Hyperion the sun and deposit there many fine treasures. If he becomes angry over his cattle and gets the other gods' consent to destroy our ship, well, I would rather gulp down salt water and die once and for all than waste away slowly on a desert island. So the choices are stark, and Eurylochus has a real clear idea of what's coming. Yes, he has no, he has no excuse. Yeah, he knows that, okay, so yes, maybe eating the cattle of the sun god, Cersei said, we're going to suffer for it. But look, I would rather die of drowning than of starving. Right, 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 right. So they go to the island, and um, exactly the thing that happens is exactly what has been foreshadowed. His men uh, slaughter some cattle. They roast it up. I think Odysseus is he's he's off napping again. He misses this, <laughs> and um, the, one of Helios's daughters comes running and ha- says, "Have you ever been woken by a barbecue? Oh, with the, the the wafting smell. Yes. Oh, yes. It's like like the coffee in the morning. You're right. Yes. Coming out of a cloud. Yes. The, the smell of bacon grilling oh, next to you. My gosh, it's the best alarm clock ever. Yeah. Right. So um, so Helios's daughter goes tells on him. And then that's really the final nail in the coffin. That's Lampety. Lampety, yep. And Helios, in turn, demands justice from Zeus. Yep, he obliges and starts blasting the the men and the ship with with bolt after bolt after bolt. Okay, and then that's the end of Book 12? That's the end of Book 12, and that's the end of Odysseus's men. Ah. And so we're left with Odysseus himself kind of clinging to the timbers of the the ship, Um, and that's where he ultimately washes up on Ogigia yes. with Calypso, where we first saw him. So now finally the long, 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 long flashback. Yes. It has been wrapped up. Yes. And Odysseus gives a kind of a footnote, doesn't he? He does. I thought that was really interesting when, he, when he's, he's talking about um, Helios' daughter and what she said and what Helios did. He uh, throws in there um, that he says, I heard all of this from Calypso, who said she heard it from Hermes. So I thought that was an interesting um, way of Odysseus saying, well... Listener, you might you might think, well, how did he know that? Yeah, he so wasn't there for that. He's book. citing the sources. He's citing the sources. So is this more evidence of kind of a more careful, thoughtful Odysseus? Definitely. Right. Well, I think we can credit it to Homer. Right? Homer, yeah, but uh, it's putting he's putting those words in Odysseus's mouth. So Fair. He's maybe a changed man. Who knows? Maybe. The beginning of Book Thirteen, then, Odysseus by himself with the Phaeacians and about to head back to Ithaca. That's right. So um, they've gotten their answer uh, that they asked. Four books ago, who are you, stranger? Um, he told them in this long, long, long story, and now they're going to put him on a ship, and they're going to load it up with everything that he needs—gifts, food, uh, whatever he wants. Huggable portions. Huggable portions, absolutely. Um, and they're going to drop him back home on Ithaca. So they row him there, mm-hmm. and he winds up on the shore then, and he's asleep when they leave him. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really interesting detail. That um, and they don't disturb him. They drop him off. It must have been a deep sleep. Well, you got to be pretty tired after all of these adventures. I suppose right. So they drop him off, and they and they leave without without saying goodbye. And he has this kind of 
Rip Van Winkle experience. Of, You're just trying to find a way to work your last name into this episode. Was it, was it that obvious? <laughs> yes, <laughs> pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was all those years of being. That was one of the many horrible. Was it really nicknames? Right. Well, it was one of the the, the least offensive. But Jeff Van Winkle. Jeff Van Winkle. Rip. Okay. Hey, Rip, how's it going? Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, can we, yeah, can we move on? Okay. All right. So then he wakes up in the, in kind of this, it was all a dream kind yeah. of quality to it, with the harp strumming in the background. It's, right. Right. And Odysseus doesn't recognize the island right away. Huh. And he thinks he's been fooled again, and he's he's M- maybe tricked by a Poseidon or some some other god trickster. Right. What forsaken land am I on now? Now it's it's worth mentioning here that. Um, a prophecy that's dropped in Book 8 uh, we see come true here. So back in Book 8, Alcinous, the, uh, the king of the Phaeacians, he says, and I'm quoting here from Lombardo's translation, he says, But I remember hearing my father, uh, Nausithus, say how Poseidon was angry with us because we always gave a safe passage to men. He said that one day Poseidon would smite a Phaeacian ship as it sailed back home over the misty sea and would encircle our city within a mountain. The old man used to say that. And either the God will bring it to pass or not, as suits his pleasure. So that's in Book 8. It's in Book 8. And so we see here Poseidon punishing the Phaeacians uh, for giving this hospitality to Odysseus. Harboring a criminal, basically, from his perspective. Right. And there's also this idea that, you know, the Phaeacian island is this kind of never-never land of, Mm -hmm. of perfection is now completely walled off from the rest of the world. Taken off the map. Yep. I have heard it referred to as Corfu, though. Corfu being the yeah, the actual location of the, the physical, the geographical spot, Corsairo. Oh, I've not heard that one. Yeah, uh, I don't know if that's true, but I know that when I was in Corinth, I purchased some um, some cheese, some feta that was from Corfu. Yes, best feta in the world. Is that right? So there might be something to that. To, to what part? To, well, it's a Phaeacian cheese. Really, it's, it's going to be good. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I can still I can still uh, taste it in my mind's eye there from Corinth. Got to get me some of that. We got to get back there. Yep. So then, at this vulnerable moment. Athena appears once again to Odysseus mm-hmm. and helps him. Right. Helps orient him to his homeland, and so begins the process of him retaking his palace. Right. She's disguised as a shepherd. Is, is there anything that she can't take on as a disguise? No. She's, she's got it all. She does. She's a, she's a master of disguise. Absolutely. Right. And it's a, it's a nice little scene. There's a... Um, I mean, one of the things Athena loves about Odysseus is his skepticism and his, uh, his craftiness and he's like her. He's like her. They can they can go toe to toe, right? But it's, she a, point, it's a real friendship, I would say. Yes, it's the abiding friendship in the play, right? She sees a lot of herself in him, right, and, and loves him for it. But she um, she tells him to go hide out with Eumaeus. Uh, tells him that uh, his son Telemachus is on his way home. Remember that he's he went off on that journey to to Pelos and Sparta. He's coming back, and she says, "Sit tight with Eumaeus until your son comes home, and then we'll go from there." And gives him a disguise, too. Right, as a, as a beggar. Takes his young, youthful, strong, I mean, I don't know what age he is, but I have to guess in this story he's maybe mid to late 30s. Yeah, how old would he have been when he went off to, to, to Troy? 20, 25, I guess something so. like that. Yeah. He's got to be old enough to be wise, but not too old that, you know, his body's starting to break down. Right. Not, not to get autobiographical <laughs> here. But she makes him look much older. Right. Yep, and so he approaches Eumaeus's hut, and here we see um, this this wonderful, wonderful character. So, Jeff, what does the name Eumaeus mean? 
I'm not sure exactly. The I mean, the the EU prefix means good or well, right? right? And the Ma- the Mayas. Um, so I did a little bit of digging. Yeah. So when I asked you, that was just kind of a feint, frankly. But <laughs> I I've did a little, set up. I did a little bit of digging, and it's really hard to find the etymology of this word. There is uh, my aomai, which means uh, to deliver a baby, uh, to deliver a package. You know, to be a nurse or a midwife. That's a possibility. Uh, there's also association with Maya, the goddess, who is hmm. the, the mother of Hermes. Right. I don't really know what the word means. So if anyone's listening and they have these philological skills, uh, send us some notification. Let us know what you think is the etymology of Eumaeus, and uh, maybe there's a prize involved. Yeah, that sounds great. I would love to know. Yeah, I would too. So when we first see Eumaeus, he's, um, he's a, we see him as a builder. As a as a craftsman, and um, he's a he's a swineherd. Mm-hmm. So he's he's uh, Homer describes that he's kind of on the far edge of the property. So he's kind of an an outcast. I mean, being a swineherd isn't exactly an elevated position. No, it's right? a solitary life. Right. Even the word might be unfamiliar to some because everyone's heard of a shep herd, right? A sheep herder. But in the Odyssey, there's also a swine herd, there's a cow herd, and there's a goat herd. Is there a hierarchy there? There Uh, there is. The goat herd is the wicked one, actually. That's right. right. Later on. And uh, the the swine herd is the the gentle, generous one, Eumaeus. Yeah. Um, But despite kind of his his nature of kind of being an an outcast of sorts, he's taking care of business. We see him repairing walls, tending the grounds, putting putting stakes where they need to be, penning the, penning the herds. He's he's watching over, over everything with detail. I can tell you from personal experience, it is difficult to keep hogs confined to a location. Is that right? Yes, that, when I was a child back on the farm, yeah. this was one of my responsibilities was to walk the line around a large property and make sure they were not burrowing out. They are incredibly, hogs are incredibly strong and clever animals. Yeah. So you cannot keep them confined. So it's it's a tough job. It is a tough job. Okay. And uh, he's doing it well uh, in, in solitary setting. And his loyalty to his master, his loyalty to Odysseus is the hallmark of his entire character. Right. Just reminding our listeners just how long Odysseus has been gone. 19 years. 19 years, and he's been keeping that flame alive. Now, Jeff, you're going to read to us a little bit of this first encounter, and this is from the Klein translation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a prose edition, maybe not quite as lyrical, but good. Very good, yes. Uh, He translates thusly, Eumaeus, the swineherd, you it was who answered Odysseus saying. So there's that apostrophe. Yes, the poet speaking to a character. Yes, um, uh, indicating um, affection. Mm -hmm. Stranger, it would be wrong for me to turn a guest away even one in a worse state than you, since every beggar and stranger is from Zeus, and a gift, though small, from such folk as us is welcome. Small it must be, since that is the servant's lot, always living in fear of the masters who lord it over them. I mean young masters like ours. The gods have thwarted my old master's homecoming. He would have cared for me with kindness, and given me things of my own, a hut, and a piece of land, and a wife worthy of having been courted by many men. Things a kind master grants a servant who has labored on his behalf and whose efforts the gods favor, just as they further my efforts here. My master would have rewarded me well indeed had he grown old here in Ithaca, but he has perished, as I wish Helen and all her race had utterly perished, since since she was the death of many a fine warrior. He went off to Ilium, famed for its horses, with all the other warriors to fight those Trojans on Agamemnon's voyage, 
of vengeance. I love that because he gives us the whole story there. <laughs> That's right. He defines his character. He defines his view of Odysseus and what's happening in the house. He breaks out into this strange misogyny. I hate Helen and all her race. This means all women, right? Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, if only Odysseus had hung around, he would have a wife worthy of being courted. So we get a real uh, nice description of Eumaeus's entire thought life. Right. And he also, he very clearly um, lays out his loyalty to Odysseus in this in this passage too. Almost as though he knows who it is. <laughs> exactly. I mean, might he have a, an, an inkling? I don't think so. I don't either. But whenever I read this with students, they're always struck by just the the irony of the story, you know, Eumaeus is saying, if only my master were here, and Odysseus says, yes, if only your master were here. The joke is for the audience, and uh, it's a rich one, and it's extended for a long, long time. Yeah, right, right. Um, but I think it's also interesting that, you know, we, you know, to put ourselves in Odysseus's head, he's, he's probably thinking, well, that sounds pretty good, but it's not enough. Hmm. He tests Eumaeus, like he tests everybody, um, maybe with the exception of his son. Um, but everybody gets a, a, a test, including his wife. Yes. How loyal have you really been? Right. Does you may say this to every stranger? Correct. Right. So Odysseus can't resist asking and hearing about himself. Here is that <laughs> character trap of curiosity mixed with vanity. Yeah. The lovable rogue. Who was this master of yours who died avenging Agamemnon? Tell me about him. Uh, like you say, vanity also a test. Right, exactly right. And then we also see that Odysseus invents this whole backstory for himself. And this is really the first time that I think he's done it to this extent. You know, he invents a name, he invents, um, you know, past adventures. And then, of course, he talks about what... This is an alter ego, right? Right. So you know what happened to the last Creed Bratton, right? (laughs) I'm only half getting your reference. Okay. Yeah. From the office, right? Yes. Yes. Apparently the last Creed Bratton was the current Creed Bratton. (laughs) We don't even know the name of the guy. You still don't get it. So the current character yes. who goes by that name, yes. that's not that character's real name. Oh. You never know the person's real name. He has assumed the identity of the previous character. Ah, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha you now. Yes. It's a pretty good joke. Okay. <laughs> so Odysseus, he's, um, he's storytelling. And I think he's clearly enjoying this too. I mean, maybe he hears Eumaeus... Maeus is kind of verbosity here and says, oh, I can match that. And he tells this long tale. And of course, in his own tale, yes, this Odysseus, I ran across him too. I bumped into him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he says, and don't you fear, I know for a certain he's coming back. Yeah. He's coming back. And Eumaeus doesn't buy it. No. But and maybe he thinks, oh, this guy's just trying to make me feel good. Right. Yeah. It's It's really rich. So now we have moved seamlessly, so seamlessly that we didn't even notice (laughs) from book 13 into 14. Right, it's just so excited to get to Eumaeus. Well, we we told the audience at the beginning, we're not going to touch on everything, of course. Right, 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 right. And now Odysseus tells Eumaeus to to do what? To to throw him off a cliff? Yeah, he says, uh, because Eumaeus says, oh, you know, thanks for the kind words, but my master's not coming home. Mm. And and Odysseus swears it. He says, yeah, throw me off a cliff if I'm wrong. And I love Eumaeus's uh, reply. Do you want to read from the Klein translation? Yes, here? he says, uh, "Oh yes, stranger," the honest swineherd said in answer. That would be a fine way indeed to win everlasting fame and honor among men, to turn murderer and to rob you of your precious life after I've taken you into my house and played the host. I could pray to Zeus, son of Kronos, with a light heart. After that, 
Come, it is time to eat, and I trust my friends will be here soon so we can make a pleasant meal of it in my hut. I love that sarcasm. Yeah. In there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll throw you off a cliff. That, that, that'd be a... that please the gods. please the gods. They right? love me. Right. That'd be great for my reputation as a host. Yeah. Right. But it's it's said with just kind of a laughter and a chuckle. Yes. Because it's, it's such a ridiculous uh, suggestion, and he's not that kind of man. Exactly. And, and I have a sense that... Again, maybe it's a little test for uh, for Odysseus. I'm going to say to see how he responds. It's a, a test by Odysseus, you're saying, yes. of Eumaeus. Of Eumaeus, exactly. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Yeah. But notice the simplicity and the, and the humility of the whole thing. I have some friends coming over. We can sit down for a, a pleasant meal in my hut. Right. So the, the low station of Eumaeus is one of the things that endears me to him. Yes. He's not put out by his own hardship from offering sincere Zania. Yeah. Unlike the suitors who have lots of resources, but they want more. Yeah. They're the picture of greed. It it strikes me that there's there's lots of tales like that uh, kind of throughout Greek mythology, but biblical narratives. Definitely. Right? Yeah. There's the expression in Hebrews, uh, you know, don't refuse hospitality. Some have entertained angels unaware. Yes. And in fact, the word there is Zania as well. Hmm. And uh, of course, in Ovid, when um, Zeus and Hermes or Jupiter and Mercury, they come down and they visit... uh, was it uh, Philemon and Baucus? Yes. It's the same kind of humble cottage setting, but they show real hospitality born out of their own poverty. Yeah, and it's a it's a longstanding comic trope as well. Where you oh. where, where do you find kind of heart and morality? It's amongst the the poor, mm-hmm. and it's the rich who have the hard hearts and are. Yeah, open. they have a hard time showing hospitality, even though they have no limit to their resources. Exactly right. Exactly right. So what about this cloak trick, this test that Odysseus makes of Eumaeus? Another test. It's another test, and it's another story that he makes up. Um, and he goes about it in this really passive-aggressive kind of way. He tells the story about once how he needed a, a cloak, and the Odysseus in the story um, sent off a, a, a guy on a fake on a, on a fake uh, <laughs> errand. And when he does, did so, he, he tossed his cloak to the ground, so apparently to run faster. And then there was the cloak that he needed. Uh-huh. So he tells this story kind of out of nowhere, and Eumaeus gets the hint. Oh, the guy wants a cloak. And he, Eumaeus is kind of charmed by it, and he, he gives him exactly that. Wow. So it's he's, so there's really no limit to his generosity and kindness. No, and he's, he's passing test after test after test. And so Odysseus sees, wow, this guy, not he's, only, not, he's only has, re- not only has he been loyal, but he, he, knows, he kind of knows the, kind of the morality of Zania to a T. Yeah, he's generous. He's very generous. Well, this brings us down to the end of Book 14, doesn't it? It does. We've, yep. we've wrapped things up. We have Odysseus back on the island of Ithaca. He's home. He's met the swineherd who's going to play a key role in the plot that ensues. Yeah, it's uh, the swineherd's hut in some ways kind of becomes a headquarters for plotting the retaking of the island. Right. This is where they figure out how to sneak into the home, how to kill the suitors. Am I spoiling it? No, no. Th- th- this is good. This okay. Is good, yeah. To do all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Telemachus is going to show up next. Yep. But that's for our next episode. Next episode. That's right. So we got to get out of here, right? Yeah, we do. It's time. Um, thanks, as always, to Mishka, our intrepid engineer. She's going to put this together and make it sound great. As she is, as she always does. Yes. You want to tell us about the moss method? Just real quick. Okay. Real quick. I know it's kind of tucked in here at the end, but people are waiting around for the gustatory parting shot. I know. So they got to They got to hear it. <laughs> you want to learn some Greek? You want to be able to read the lines in a sonorous fashion like Dr. Winkle did? What you got to do is you got to go to mossmethod.com. Check out the Greek program I've put together. Expert, self-paced, accessible. Go from neophyte to erudite. 
Check it out. Now, why do we got to get out of here? Well, we have to get out of here because um, there's another international booking here in the Vomitorium. Oh, really? Do you want to tell us who this is? I think it's the BLMRA is coming in. The Blimra? The Blimra. They booked it. It's the British Lawnmower Racing Association. Oh, yeah. The the one that was founded in 1973. That's the exact one. And since then, they have, quote, spread like crabgrass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and now you can race your lawnmower in the U.S. and Germany and Luxembourg and Canada, yeah, New Zealand and the Czech Republic. Luxembourg? Luxembourg. Wow. They excellent. got grass. They got a mow. <laughs> uh, check out their blog, The Cutting Edge. Oh, man. And check out our blog or our website at least. Leave a review. We'd really love that at uh, Apple iTunes or Spotify. We've been getting some great viewer mail from a number of persons all over the place. Mm-hmm. So send those suggestions and complaints. Send your etymology of Eumaeus to Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. And also to Jeff at adnauseum.com. That's right. Now, what's on the menu for next week? For next week, uh, the next three books of the Odyssey, 15 through 17, reunions, plotting, great stuff. A lot of tear jerking as well, if I remember. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of crying when Odysseus and Telemachus finally meet up. It gets sappy. It does. Okay, and Jeff, you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from the famous uh, humorist Will Rogers, who once said, An onion can make people cry, but there's never been a vegetable that can make people laugh. (laughs) I'm not sure I agree with that, but I like the quote. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.